Hello. This is the More Than Hearers podcast. I'm Orion Williams. I'm here with your host, Peter Willis. Hi, Peter. Hey, Orion. Happy uh, podcast day. It's podcast day. (laughs) It's podcast day indeed. I love it. Oh, man. Feels like it's been forever, but uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, I looked at the date of whenever our last re- our last release was relative to this one, and uh, I was like, oh, it's been forever. It's been right. one, one forever unit. If that's how we measure forevers. Yeah. I'm many forevers old. Time between podcasts <laughs> is the forever unit. Is one forever. I'm... That's it. I'm uploading that to uh, somewhere on the internet tonight. Uh, one forever equals time between podcast uploads. So, so excited to be back in Romans 8 tonight, uh, or today, or this afternoon, or in the middle of the night, depending on when and where you are listening. Get some sleep if it's the middle of the night. Maybe we'll put you to sleep. Maybe that's why you're listening. Whatever it is, we appreciate it nonetheless. Welcome. Romans 8 starts out with this therefore and we've had this once or twice already in Romans and it's cliche but we got to find out what it's there for so we look back at Romans 7 and how it ended and in Romans 7 Paul's addressing this I don't know what the right term is I'm sure there's a fancy word and you can email me or tweet me or whatever later and go what you should have said was this but I didn't say it so it doesn't matter but this um imbalance Paul finds of in his mind he wants to do what the Lord requires of him he wants to be obedient to the law and and just to be obedient in general to the Lord but he keeps on sinning Uh, the good he wants to do he doesn't do and all the things that he shouldn't be doing those are the things he keeps on doing and he ends chapter 7 with um what a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he goes, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, Romans eight chapter, uh, Romans chapter eight, verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just finish there. Can we? Can we? Is that the end of the Bible? I'm Please? good. I, <laughs> Please be the end. It's so it's so perfect, and and it's one of those verses where you can pull it out of its context, and it's so great, but it doesn't lose any of it. Like you can pull other verses out of context, and it loses what they're saying. Yeah, I, you can actually change meaning, but but right. this. This stands alone just fine. That's awesome. It's not like when somebody comes to you and goes, Oh, remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't go, That's not really what it's saying. Because that's really what it's saying. So great. Uh, But it does keep going. In fact, even though that's where the verse ends, the sentence doesn't actually end there. Uh, Verse 1 ends with a comma. Verse 2 says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's what Paul's been setting up since the beginning of Romans. Since Romans chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3 paints this picture of just how far off the mark we are. And he starts building back in this good news of we're justified by faith. We're no longer bound to doing the right thing in order to win God's good graces. He says, from the beginning of time, that's been impossible. 
Yeah, it can't be done. Say, did it ever work? No, because even he says in chapter four, we spent plenty of time on it. If you haven't listened to it, please go back because the way Romans grows on itself and builds on itself, uh, you're missing out uh, seven chapters before this one. But he even says in chapter four, he goes, Abraham wasn't justified by doing anything right. He was justified or he was righteous because he believed God. And that's what credited him as righteousness. It wasn't any good deed. And so carrying that forward into chapter 8, the law of the Spirit gives life. And it separated us completely. We're free from the law of sin and death. We were crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in us. The we who isn't capable of obedience to the law is dead anyway. It's Christ who's overcome death and sin, who lives in us. Therefore, we have overcome death and sin. I guess we can finish there instead. All right. Oh, no, no. We got like 34 more verses to go. So, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. I guess I got ahead of myself. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's so, I think we've covered this before, that Paul in a lot of places gets really wordy, and it sometimes can be hard to track, or even if you're tracking with it, you gloss over something so key and central and powerful. There's a lot of teaching out there, there's a lot of, Oh, churches out there who say that the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Malachi, through Zechariah, Genesis through the end, Genesis through the end of the Old Testament is irrelevant to us as Christians, and it's simply not true. Because how could you know that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us if you have no idea what the righteous requirement of the law is? The law simply states this: that. Uh, Sin demands a sacrifice, not just any sacrifice. It demands a pure sacrifice of blood. Therefore, Christ being in the same likeness of sinful flesh, being the pure blood sacrifice for sin, the requirement, the righteous requirement of the law is fully met through our participation with him. Uh, Hopefully you track on that. For me, it makes my mind want to blow up because it's such the perfect solution to our sin that I don't even know how you could think somebody made it up because it's so perfect. It's more perfect than I would have come up with for a solution. Yeah, the, the best Hollywood writers right. would not have come up with this. The, the New York Times best-selling authors could not have dreamed this up. No, and, that, and that's what makes it so cool. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And I want to pause there before we go forward because it just tacks on top of what Paul was saying at the end of chapter 7. Because in my mind, I want to be obedient to God. But just my body keeps messing this up. And he says, there's this battle in me. 
And so that's why he's being really specific here. He says, the mind governed by the spirit is desirous of what God wants. The mind governed by the flesh just does all kinds of crazy stuff. And so we've got to be changed. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds have to be guided by the spirit because of what verse 8 says. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's not a will not, it's not a might not, it's not a uh, probably aren't gonna, it's a cannot. Do you, can, can you maybe, help me uh, understand if Paul is talking about here that, because he talks about the things I want to do, I, I don't do, like that's a mind thing. Yeah. Right? That, so, yeah. If he, so if he has the mind... Uh, to put it in these words, uh, it's the uh, the mind set on, okay, yeah, verse 5 is the mind set on what the flesh desires, but then verse 6, uh, oh, it's still about, yeah, the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So what's happening to his mind in that case if, if it's the things he wants to do, or is, is that more like the heart? I mean, it's, it's a challenge here, like reconciling Paul's own statement there with what he says a righteous mind yields. Had I known this question was coming, sure, I might have done a little more research because that one's got to wonder if in the Greek, these minds and spirits and, and flesh words are different along the way. We've got to operate on it with what we've got here in front of us um, at the moment. But um, just your best, your best. Yeah, my best, uh, my best guess is, is I think, or my best observation, I don't want to call it just a guess. That sounds kind of hollow, and I'm just throwing it against the wall to see what sticks. 50-50 chance. But <laughs> it's a little better than that, is I think more than anything, what Paul's trying to do is just get our minds to accept how difficult all of this is to reconcile, to get our minds to accept that there's a battle going on here, that it's not as cut and dry as we'd like it to be. Yeah, he never I- lets us just settle like with, oh, I guess I'm doing just fine as is. Like there's never, the, the Bible never, in God's word, it's never just laid out, you know what? You're doing fine as is. It's always be perfect as I am perfect. Called to this high standard, this, this high bar. It's, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, like you said. It's, it's, and it's rough because um, I shared this recently from the pulpit. Um, one of the greatest lies that's being told even in churches in this age is a good God will help out nice people who are trying their best. And what Paul's saying here is your best isn't good enough. You can't even try your best. If you're operating in the flesh, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's why Matthew 5, you go back to Matthew 5 where Jesus is um, doing the Sermon on the Mount, where he just turned it on, on its ear. He goes, you've heard it said, do not murder. There are plenty of people who may have beat someone within an inch of their life who went, I didn't murder. And Jesus goes, you've heard it said, do not murder. The problem is, is if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. It, it was just to point us to our ability of our own flesh to meet the requirements of the law don't exist. We don't have the ability. It's often said that uh, if, you want to, if you want to see the gospel, uh, 
just read Romans. Like, yeah. like the, the gospel is in Romans and it's just here. It's just leaping out at me that the, the, the constant pointing, like uh, whatever it is you think that you've got going on right in your life, apart from Jesus, it's worthless. And G- only by Jesus are we considered a value at all. And that value is then immense in Jesus. And that's where, you know, as we covered the first few chapters in particular, it's where Romans gets hard to read a little bit at a time. You read chapter one and, and, you know, Paul's like, hey, God's evident in everything, but we don't give God any acknowledgement. So God turned us over to all of these sins and he lists off the, the top whatever. I don't know how many there even are there, but he lists off everything from, you know, homosexuality and gossip and slander and bitterness all the way down to disobedient to parents. And then in chapter two, he goes, oh, and if you think those people are bad, you're judgmental and that makes you bad. And by the end of chapter three, he goes, here's the truth. Nobody's righteous. And so those first three chapters by themselves are hard. But like you said, he's painting this picture, this this thorough picture of the gospel of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not even one. And here's the good news. We are justified by our faith. Mm. And... By being justified by our faith and by identifying with Christ, we no longer live because chapter 7, us, makes a mess of everything. Even if we want to live right, we can't. And so chapter 8, he goes, here's the thing. As long as you keep trying on your own, you will not please God. Here's the truth. You cannot please God. Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that's been done on this earth that pleased God. So here are your choices. Try your best, which won't work, or participate in the one thing that happened on this earth that's pleasing to God. That's so epic. Where do I sign? I want to sign. Like, do I have to sign something? No, no, just participate. Submit to him as Lord. Oh, man, I'm getting chapter 10. Anyway, let's go on. Did I answer your question satisfactorily, or do we need to Yeah, no, that it? was fun for me. Thanks. Okay, I, it was fun for me, too. Number, verse 9, uh, just so I can pick up my, my positioning again. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if, indeed, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, I love this verse. So I mentioned it, I know, a few episodes back, and I was getting ahead of myself as I'm prone to doing. But it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Our obligation, verse 12 again, is not to the flesh. It is according to the Spirit. Our obligation is to live according to the Spirit. Our obligation is to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's so cool to me because um, we, we, I say we, I'm not saying Orion and I, but we, the church, since I was a kid, has said, pray this prayer, ask Jesus to your, into your heart to forgive your sins, and you get to go to heaven. End of sentence. 
But Paul says here in verse 12, we have an obligation. There's a next step. The step doesn't have to happen in order to live with Christ. You don't have to do to be with Christ. But once you're with Christ, there's something to do. Mm-hmm. We have an obligation no long, to live no longer according to how we lived in our flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. And chapter 7 says it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle, but it's one worth fighting because of what Christ did for us. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. I I was going to go on, but I want to stop there because this turned things on its ear. And Jesus said it before Paul. Paul's just reiterating it. Before Christ came, your best hope was to be one of the people of God. Israel was God's chosen people. They were the people of God. This is better. Like, there's plenty of people in my neighborhood. You know, there are people of the city where I live. We're all the people of, but we're not the children of. We're not all brothers and sisters. This gave us an opportunity to participate as children of God. Anyway. Yeah, that's did we addressed it right? The co-heir. Uh, oh, it's yeah. going there. It's coming. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, that's all right. I was getting ahead of ourselves. Again. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> Verse 15. <laughs> the spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received, brought about by your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry. Abba, Father. I'm going to keep going. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are, as Orion was getting to, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Hey, hey, hey. You were were on a really good kick there, Paul. Until I hit the sufferings part? Yeah. Yeah, Because it matters. But before we get to it, because this heirs thing, I I don't know how much we get it. Maybe you're listening and you get it because you you get an inheritance from your grandfather for, I don't know, a bunch of money and something you really wanted. I don't know. I haven't received any sort of like major inheritance. I'm not waiting on one either. It doesn't matter to me because this inheritance, this one, it's, it's better than a rich uncle. It's better than a rich parent. It's better than a rich grandparent. This is eternity with God. This is, uh, we can't earn it, we didn't make it, we certainly don't deserve it, but because Jesus died, and we've chosen to participate and identify with him, we get access to the whole kingdom. Including the one who died for our inheritance. Yeah. Like, that's the, in in the greatest uh, Hollywood version of any sort of inheritance story. It's some distant relative that you didn't know, and then you get a bunch of money. And so there's no emotional connection. There's no tie there. It's just like, yay, money. Uh, but then in this case, it's this precious loved one that died that then we inherit, because of, because of their death, we inherit the kingdom of God, and the precious one is resurrected. It's not dead. It's... It's, you get everything. You get yeah. everything out of this. It's so awesome. It's, it's winning. Yes, it's win. But here's the asterisk. The end of, the end of verse 17. The if. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his sufferings. Why? Why? You know what? What's like, I think there's a couple of 108-year-olds on the planet right now. I'm not sure. That's nothing. It's, a, it's not even a blink in comparison to eternity with God. What are our sufferings that we should compare them to the glory that's to come? I don't know. And actually, you know what's funny? We did it again. It's coming in verse 18, so maybe I'll stop. <laughs> so we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. How cool is that? Whatever it is, and I'm, I'm not going to try to minimize my suffering or your suffering or anything you're going through. I'm not going to say that what you're going through isn't rough. I'm not going to say that what you're going through isn't bad. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is what Paul says. Your present suffering is not worth even comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed in you. That's the promise. The promise isn't that God will yank you out of your sufferings. He might, not my choice. I I don't know how he decides that and doesn't decide that. It's certainly not up to me. What I am saying is that what's on the other side of it is way better. According to the truth, our disobedience as sinners makes us garbage. Not worth God's presence. And so we participate with Jesus And we get the presence of God. We get to be citizens of heaven in eternity. But not just that. Not just people get to show up. We're heirs. Co-heirs. We are children of God. Not just citizens, but children of God. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to our present sufferings. Verse 19, and, and this passage is so cool and I love that it's in here. 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I'm going to keep going. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I'm, I don't want to get ahead beyond that because I want to point out something here. This is written, oh... I don't know, a couple thousand-ish years ago, give or take a hundred or two hundred years. And Paul says something here that we think we've just figured out in the last 30 to 50 years. Creation's falling apart. This planet we're on is falling apart. And I don't want to get on a soapbox. I didn't bring one anyway. I'm sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. But... Um, There are those who will tell you that it's all our fault. It is. This even says it is. (laughs) It sucks. (laughs) Because the garden, go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the garden was this perfect place where God had created perfection for us to dwell in, and we screwed it up. And so God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Since the fall, the earth has been passing away. It was cursed so that we would have to work it. Not even just the earth. 
all of creation. The entire universe. Yeah. Like, that's the scope that we're talking about that's falling apart. Like, it's not that, like, man sinned and then the earth alone started to decay. The entire universe is dying. Yeah. Decaying. And while it's our fault, the only solution, according to what Paul says here in Romans 8, while this is my personal belief, I'm not making this up and just spouting it off to you because it's easy or whatever. This is here in the Word of God. It says the only way we can fix it is by surrendering to Christ. Once we're redeemed, God will redeem the earth right along with us. But for now, it's a participant in the curse because of our sin. It's very true, whatever the environmental movement or lobby wants to tell you, that we're at fault for the decay of the world around us. However, the notion that we can solve it, Mm -hmm. oh man, it's preposterous. It goes back to Romans 1. Although they knew God, they neither acknowledged him or gave thanks to him. The truth is, is while the earth is passing away, it is not ours to fix other than we prepare ourselves for redemption as sons and or daughters. That's the solution for this earth. You want to fix the planet? Get right with God. All right. At the same time, we have an obligation to stewardship. All the way back to the garden. God put Adam in the garden to rule and have dominion over it, but that didn't mean like to just beat it down. They meant to take care of it. He was the first gardener, if you will. We should be good stewards of what we have, but understand that we can't solve this the crisis of this planet falling apart. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. So, verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This phrase... Hope that is seen is no hope at all has been repeated time and time and time and time and time again in church, so much so that we're deaf to what it means. Uh, Hope. Oh, yeah, hope that's seen is no hope at all. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Bob, or whoever the guy who said it to you was, and a pat on the back, and you go home and you go, why does he always say that? It's so simple. It's right there on the surface of it. If you're hoping for something that's right in front of you, that's not hope. That's want. Hope is for something you haven't yet taken hold of. So, for in this hope, this hope of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our spirits, our redemption as sons and daughters, we hope for this inheritance. And it says, if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay, time for an honesty moment. I would love to skip over this passage. I would love to not address it. I would love to move on from it and pretend it's not here. And I was, as I was reading it, I was really tempted to just keep going in 28 and forget. I don't know how many of you listening know how much this scripture has been used to say things it does not say. 
In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. People will use this as a proof text for some sort of tongues-based prayer language. Uh, We don't know what to pray for, so we pray uh, in our prayer language, in tongues, if you will, and that's the Holy Spirit communicating with God. How do you reconcile the word wordless in here? It's wordless groans. It's the Spirit interceding on a level that maybe we don't even hear or comprehend. This doesn't reference, either in the English or in the Greek, some other unknown language. It just doesn't. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm just saying this isn't a proof text for it. That's all. That's fair. Now that half of you have turned off, the rest of you are still listening, we can keep going. But it's just, I've said it before and I want to say it again. We can't pretend the word doesn't say something that it does. But we also can't make it say something it does not. And so we have to take this with what it says and move on from it. That's why I wanted to skip it, but we'll keep going. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, when your friends at church are going through a divorce, or one of their loved ones has been in a car accident, or their kid runs away from home, or somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, this is the verse you use, right? Uh, I, I do. Uh, I used to. <laughs> <laughs> you do? I, I, no, I used to. Uh, it's, but this is the one that, yeah, that everyone... It's, it makes it, people feel better, I think doesn't it's the, it? It's the... Uh, I don't want to say the new Christian uh, verse for comfort, but it's it's definitely like one of the first things that comes to mind. And I don't know how helpful it really is, so I, I, I've shied away from it. In years. And I, I'm not pointing it out to say, don't do that, but don't do that. Like, if the Lord's leading you to do it, do it by all means. Um, Orion and I had a good friend go through a really serious car accident uh, this last year. And one of the things in being present with that family as they went through it that I learned is people will say the worst the, things. The darndest things. Because they feel the need to say something. Mm-hmm. There is an incredible oh, power in the gift of silence, of being present with someone. That being said, here I am nonstop talking for how many ever minutes this is going to go for. But... In, in this case, it's not always the best verse to use. I understand why people do it. I'm not telling you it's not true. It's here. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's universally true, but maybe not right now. God may not use this for good right now. When someone's hurting, it's not the best time to go, God's got a plan for this because God's got a plan for, you know, my best friend being in, in, uh, in a coma or my, my wife having cancer or, you know, me losing my job. Yes, he does. But right now what you need is comfort, not platitudes. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's the wrong word. I'm sorry, but I try to get on a high horse that I probably shouldn't get on. Let's move on. <laughs> it's true. Just... Maybe don't say it at the weird, weirdest times. For those God foreknew... Oh, no, here we go. I wasn't ready for this, Orion. Were you ready for this? I forgot this was here. I did, too. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Ah, shoot. Um, All of our Calvinist listeners, please open up uh, your email app and prep this. No, I'm just kidding. Please don't. Email if you want to. But um, this is another one of those verses that gets used to say a lot of things that it doesn't say. Let's look at what it says. It says, for those God foreknew. Pause. Foreknew. God knew before. God knew. He also predestined. Oh, that's it. No. We're predestined. No, no, there's more words here. No, 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 that's it. I there's a period. Oh, found- okay, what are they? Oh, they're, 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 oh, there they are. For those God knew ahead of time, he also predestined or preselected to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This does not say God predestined a certain group of people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the other ones he predestined to not. That, that doesn't fit with God for me. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I've been wrong before it's happened. But what this says is God knew ahead of time, who would choose his son. And those he knew would choose of their own free will and volition, he predestined them to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, which we've been talking about for the last two chapters or so. No longer living according to the flesh, but living according to the spirit. Whose spirit? The spirit of Christ. Those God knew would come to knowledge of him, he pre-chose or predestined or preordained or foreordained, pick your favorite word, to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Those who didn't make that choice of their own free will, why would God predestine them to be conformed like Christ? They have no desire to be conformed like Christ, right? Right. Did I miss a point here? Uh, no, I think that was uh, I think that was well handled. This is one of those things that probably I don't know the audience uh, yet, but uh, come on over, we'll have tacos. No, yeah. Uh, oh man. <laughs> Uh, but but I don't know how much other people get into these things. But, but th- some of these verses, when we stop, sometimes we just stop to marvel in a, in the truth of a verse, where it's just a, a wonderment to me. Where it's like we we just need to take a little bit of time more you know more time with it. And other times we stop because someone out there listening might have an idea that they've heard, or they might have a question and the questions that we had when we when we studied this stuff and then we want to help those people get to uh at least if we can refine something that they've already been working on or if we can challenge them to think of something in in a different way than they're used to and then we can have a discussion i mean i'm open to all that too but that's why we stop for these ones and i made the joke about calvinists submitting an email i I, what i really don't want is people going oh more than hearers they're anti-calvinist nope now i'm well, I think I can speak for Orion and myself in that we're pro-Jesus. Yes. Not anti-anything. Pro-Jesus. I'm not saying that there's other scriptures in the Bible that don't reference um, predestination or, or selection or whatever you want to call it. What I'm saying is, is this verse. This is these not- two verses say this. They say God did know ahead of time. And those he knew ahead of time, he predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's it. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to pick on anybody. 
Um, the truth is you can be as diehard Calvinist as you want or diehard Arminius as you want. Are you pro-Jesus? Because I'm pro-Jesus. We're on the same team. Yeah. There are. Paul's going to reference a phrase later on um, that uh, I love and has become part of my Bible teaching in other places. He uses this term, disputable matters. These are disputable matters. They don't matter in the end of all things. And we will dispute them. Yeah, please, <laughs> by all means. Sometimes Orion and I dispute them among ourselves before we ever even turn on the mics. But um, uh, yeah, uh, please don't get caught here. Don't get stuck. There are other places to get stuck. No, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Do you love Jesus? Uh, is he Lord of your life? Okay, we're good. We're on the same page. Moving on then. Um, Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? This phrase comes up again and again and again in Romans because Paul's building on itself. So he goes, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think the answer is nobody. That's what I get. Okay, good. So moving on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life. Christ Jesus who died is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword? None of it. I love this. He says, if God's for us, who can be against us? If God didn't spare his own son, but gave his own son up for us, how is he not going to give us everything else? If he gave up his best for us, why wouldn't he give us the rest? Now, This isn't justification for prosperity by any means. This is just eternity. Uh, It's it's inheritance. It's heir. heir, I don't know what the right word is. It's us as heirs. Looking for you going to say errants? Heirdom. Heirdom. Yes. (laughs) Which isn't a word. That might be. I'm I'm surprised by some of the things that are words. Okay. So good enough. It's. It's the state of being heirs. It's those things. It's not a multi-million dollar airplane. It's not the big house and the great cars and all of that. It's participation as sons and daughters of God. Heirdom is a word. Oh, man. Redemption. Woo. Ah, mark this day down. So verse 33, because it's, it's right in the middle of a flow, but it's so good by itself. Who will bring charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. There's no one. That's why back to verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because the only one who could, who could condemn is God. So God justifies us by giving us Christ. Who could say we're not justified? It's God who does it. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, this is the cool thing about no longer being bound to the law of sin and death. Death holds no mastery over us. Over our physical body, sure, but so what? What is that? This is just dust God formed from the earth and breathed life into. That's all it is. When he decides there's no more life in it, there's no more breath in it, by all means, that puts us in his presence. Depending on your view and theology as far as all those things. No, I'm just kidding. And <laughs> it's totally a joke. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And some of the best verses in the Bible, I say that about a lot of verses, but some of the best verses in the Bible. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only thing I would add to the end of this is it's our choice whether we participate or not. If you're listening and you haven't made that choice, men, the last eight chapters of Romans are leading you to why would you not make that choice? The alternative is terrible. This, this is good news.